through verse 31, or the end of the chapter. Hear the word of the Lord. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper uh, to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you will also live. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world. Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words and the word that you hear is not mine but the father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said, all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away, and I will come to you. If you love me, you would have rejoiced because I am going with the Father, going to the Father, with, for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as my Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. Let us go to our God in prayer, that he might speak to us. Father, as we do come to you this morning, we pray that you would speak through your word by your spirit to us. For you have promised your word always bears fruit and brings conviction as well as encouragement. Lord, instruct us. May we see Jesus. May we be deeper in our affection for him as we recognize how he has loved us. And may he be seen in us, he who dwells within us, to the glory of you and for the benefit of those who live around us. We pray in Christ. Amen. Some of you are aware, most of you probably not, but one of the opportunities I had in ministry prior to moving to Williamsburg was to serve as the chaplain for the Chicago White Sox rookie league team in southwest Virginia. 
I had done that before when I was in seminary. I served with the Houston Astros AA team, had been a number of years, and I had the opportunity, came back, and spent uh, three years as a chaplain with the White Sox rookie league team. The second year I was there, I was particularly excited as the White Sox announced their assignments for who was going to be coaching and managing the different teams throughout their organization because they had selected a guy for, to be a first-time manager, um, although he had a pedigree. His father had been a, a manager in, in the major leagues. Um, and it was a name that I had recognized. The guy who was appointed to be the manager of the White Sox was Pete Rose, Jr., and so I was excited, particularly excited when I'd heard that Petey, for those of you who have been around for a while and remember him as the bat boy for the Reds and for, uh, for the Phillies when he was a kid. So I was excited the, to know that Petey was going to be the manager and even more excited when I was told that uh, Petey had made a profession of faith uh, really, uh, I think it was like in January, just a few months before uh, they moved to our area. So I was excited to get to know him and to encourage him in his new faith. And I have to be honest, I held out some vain hopes that I would also be able to be able to minister to his dad, Pete Rose Sr. I had these ideas in the back of my head that I would be the one to be able to help Pete Rose into the kingdom of God. And I was quite sure that as I began with the presentation of the gospel, it was not going to be hard for me to help him to understand there's something in his life that you might call sin. I mean, you know, for those of you who know him, if you don't know who he is, look him up and you'll agree with me right away. And I was all the more excited when Major League Baseball gave an exemption and allowed Pete to be able to come to the Suns games, although he never came during the two years that I was serving with him. But it was a great opportunity to get to know Petey, and he was regular at chapel and get to talk with him some and got to know his wife, Shannon, and their seven-year-old son, Trey. And so I would spend my afternoons in the spring and summertime in a rough gig in ministry at the ballpark, the fresh air, smell of the fresh cut grass, you know, somebody has to do these things. And so I was willing to sacrifice for, for that and to engage. But one of the things I found of interest as I, I got to know uh, um, uh, Petey and, and Shannon and, and, and C. Trey is uh, their, um, the way they were parenting Trey, not in an overarching sense, but particularly as it related to his sports. Now, and it may not come as a surprise to you, but for a seven-year-old, Trey had one of the sweetest swings you would ever see of a baseball bat. It was just very natural fluid. And so a lot of the guys, that, you know, again, these are professional ball players, they would pitch batting practice to him and, and he could hit. And I remember asking him one time that he came after batting practice and I was sitting up uh, in the stands behind the dugout with, uh, with Shannon. And, um, and I said, so Trey, what position do you play? And he just said with total confidence, what don't I play? Um, <laughs> definitely he's taken off after his, uh, his, in his heritage. And that. But what was intriguing was that Shannon and Pete had shared that they were, um, they were very particular about who was going to ever be Trey's coach. Not because of what we would expect because he is endowed with more natural talent than most kids. I mean, I've coached Little League. I'd love to have Pete Rose on my team. Um, but because they didn't want people to have expectations that he would walk in the shoes of his father who was not famous but was a major league player and their grandfather who is a Hall of Fame, well, should be in the Hall of Fame. Well, that's a whole other conversation, I suppose. But anyway, Hall of Fame worthy players. <laughs> Hall of Fame worthy player. 
See, Trey is named Trey because he is Pete Rose III. And the reality that came to mind this week, what brought that to attention, is that sometimes expectations can be crushing, particularly when you are asked to follow into the shoes of someone who is great. And so as I was looking at this passage this week, I realized what Jesus was saying is very difficult to swallow, at least it is for me, because the essence of what Jesus says here, where we are picking up, is that he's going away. He talked about that last week. He was going, he's going to be preparing a place for those who are as follows. But he's saying essentially here, I am going away. And you, my disciples, and everyone who believes in me, you're going to continue on with the work that I have begun. And you're going to do the same things that I did. And then he says, and as if that's not intimidating enough, that we're going to walk in the shoes of, of Jesus, of God himself. Jesus then makes this really seeming bizarre statement and you're going to do even greater works than I have done. I don't know about you, or, but that is quite intimidating to me. Just the whole idea of having to follow and continue to do what Jesus was doing, that itself is difficult. But I can't get past the statement that Jesus is saying, and you, anyone who believes in me. So this is not just the disciples, but anyone who believes. So this is for all of us who claim the name of Christ. We're going to do things greater than what Jesus did. I mean, my mind raced back through what we have looked at over this past, what's it been, year and a half, two years. We've been studying this book so far and some of the highlights that we saw with Jesus. Jesus made those who were sick well. Jesus gave sight to a man who was born blind. Jesus took a handful of loaves and a couple pieces of fish and fed multitudes. The number often is 5,000, but if you were with us, you remember that that 5,000 was counting only the adult males. So more likely it was he fed with that minuscule amount of resource, probably 15 to 20,000. And then when they collected the baskets at the end, they had more coming back in than they sent out in the first place. Jesus who raised a friend from the dead. And even if we're not looking at things that would seem to be so significant, like the healing and the resurrection, arising, raising people from the dead, and, and, and the feeding of those who were hungry. From the very beginning, we saw Jesus saved a party. I mean, that was the first miracle that he did, and that was the whole motive behind it. They were having a wedding party. Jesus happened to be at the party. He was a guest. His mother comes running up to him and says, hey, they ran out of wine. And, and that was scandalous. And so she didn't want her friends to, to look bad, like they were bad hosts. And Jesus didn't want any part of this. He says, you know, woman, what's this to do with me? Which I can tell you, that wouldn't go well if I had said that to my mother at any time. Probably even still. <laughs> not a good idea. Not recommending that in terms of discourse. So that's not the shoes that we should follow in. But then Jesus instructs the people to bring these huge vats or to fill the vats with water. And then he turns the water into wine and this party was saved. So not only was he demonstrating that he has power over these things, but his whole motive was to save the party as well as to demonstrate that he was the promised Messiah. He is concerned about the important things of life, the healing, whether we have our food and our, our supply. He's concerned with things that would even be somewhat mundane, which is how do you save a party? And then he's telling us, okay, you're going to go and do the same kinds of things, and you're going to do things that are even greater than that. That is an incredibly intimidating commission that I 
hear Jesus putting us on and, and saying, this is not just what he's asking of us to try, but he is expecting that we will do. Now, as I look at this passage and as daunting of a thought that it may be, that this is what we are commissioned to do, in one sense, it's, it's the kind of the description of what we're supposed to do day to day, the way that we are neighbors to the people who are around us. We are to continue doing the types of things that Jesus did. We meet their tangible needs. We bring encouragement. We bring uh, healing if we are able to, whether it's emotional or through providence to help them be healed physically. We, we should be concerned about every aspect of every person who comes into our lives. But we still have that idea that we're gonna do things that are greater than Jesus. And that boggles my mind. Seems almost impossible. But in the rest of our text, Jesus gives us some principles that are vitally important for us to remember or to learn if we don't yet understand them. And this text, in one sense, is difficult because he weaves concepts through here. And so we're not going to be able to look, okay, verse 1, verse 2, and move that way. But we can take the concepts that he gives that are foundational, And then with those foundations, recognize the other precepts and other principles that he instructs us about and see how those work and what he will do through his people who love him and who are faithful and obedient to the call that we all share if we are followers of Jesus Christ. I think the first principle that we need to recognize because it's not only foundational, but I mean, it's foundational and it's something we need to always make sure that we are rooted in is that while Jesus is saying that we will do greater things, and it is a commission to engage in the world and to uh, continue on his mission, he also tells us that we will engage in that mission with a continual connection with him as the Christ. Because when he's giving that, we we see that in this passage, and we see in verse 15 where he talks about, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Verse 16, I'll ask the Father and he will send you a helper. And then he talks about that, helper again uh, a little bit later and Jesus says look I'm going away but I will and I will have another who will come in in my place I will be with you I'm going away and I will be with you now this is also something that is quite bizarre because if somebody's going away then they're not with you because Jesus who is man in every aspect but is also God as he ascends to the father he is also able then to be with us. He's no longer limited by geography or by person. And and we'll talk about that in a moment. But Jesus is saying not that you need to go out and do this for me, but his words when he says, you will do greater works than these because, back in verse 12, because I am going to the Father. So Jesus is telling them, I'm going, but I will be with you. And we need to hold that tension, and we'll get that to that in a moment. But what intrigues me is the language that Jesus uses. We see in verse 19, when he elaborates on that point, that we're commissioned to go, but he's going to be with us, and he's going to continue doing the work. In verse 18, perhaps he saw the fear on the disciples' face. Certainly it would have been mine if I was sitting there that day trying to figure out what is he saying and does he really expect this? And Jesus says in verse 18, I will not leave you as orphans. And it's an interesting statement that he makes there because an orphan is a, is a child who has lost both parents or it's a person who is 
without protection uh, from the challenges in this world and, and really an orphan is somebody who has no place where they believe or where they feel that is their home. They, they don't have any real place where they belong. And the disciples may very well have been thinking that way, feeling that way when they realized they had spent the past three years following this guy who also said, there's no place for me to lay my head. So they had given up quite a bit. They had put all their eggs in the basket of following this guy for the purpose of, of establishing the kingdom of God, believing that he is the promised king and that he would establish his kingdom. And, and their mindset, much like ours sometimes, is that they follow him, they are faithful, they would bear fruit, and then you would have this steady, and then one day he would become the king. Now, they probably weren't foolish enough, it, certainly not from their own experience, to assume that that was going to go without any glitches or without any opposition. They recognized that, but they believed at the end of the day, Jesus would be the king, he would be reigning, all things would be made right, and we would be uh, called uh, in this world to live uh, according to righteousness. Now he says he's leaving. Everything that they trusted, their identity, their place, their hope, their purpose is all rooted in him. And he says, now I'm going. In a sense of feeling abandoned, hopeless, powerless. Who's going to lead them? Who's going to protect them? And it may have been that the word struck me a little more this week because last weekend Carolyn and I went to see a play at the Williamsburg Players Theater and of Green Gables. Caitlin Morton from Grace Covenant has a role in it and so we went to see the play. Several others from the church were there when we went and I, I wasn't particularly familiar with, I mean I general idea, I knew it was in Canada someplace, um, but I didn't really know the storyline much beyond that and if you're not familiar with, uh, with the, the story Anne of Green Gables is about a, an 11-year-old orphan girl who is mistakenly sent to live with a, a middle-aged older couple, brother and sister, um, to help them on their farm and to become part of that family. And when I said it was a mistake, is because they had asked the orphanage to send them a young boy. Because a boy, 11, 12-year-old boy, was coming into strength, would be able to help with all the chores, and increasingly, as they got older, he would be getting, you know, he would be maturing and be able to do more and more, would benefit him, he would inherit the farm. And so this scrawny 11-year-old girl shows up, and they're a little shocked, and particularly the sister, saying, we, we, don't, we don't have enough, we can't take care of this girl, I don't know what to do with her, she, she's not uh, going to be of any help to us, and we're not going to be really of any great help to her. Recognizing that she was being sent back, Anne's response is to beg for an opportunity to prove herself and to promise that she will do everything she can to help. She'll do everything there. That's a typical orphan response. Desperately wanting a place, feeling they need to make promises. They need to make things happen. Some of you are familiar with the name Jack Miller, Jack and Rosemarie. Um, Jack, uh, some of you know Paul, if you're a friend of the church, his, their son Paul uh, is a friend of Grace Covenant. But uh, J before Jack had founded World Harvest Mission, which is now known as Surge, he and Rosemarie spent uh, a number of, a lot of time working with orphans in Uganda. And from their work with the orphans, they came to see that there were certain character traits that orphans 
uh, tended to adopt. Most of them feel very anxious and they, they feel very alone. And they feel rejected or abandoned and, and they feel unworthy and consequently uh, they live with fear and they develop the I've got to fix it mindset, mentality. And they try to control their circumstances by the promise of fixing things or making things better and pouring themselves in because their experience, the only way they will be loved, the only way they can fit in is if they prove their worthiness. The idea of simply being loved is something that has been taken from them because of the circumstance in their lives. But what became interesting is that Jack Miller, who after they left the mission field, um, went back into pastoring a church, he recognized that many of us as Christians display these same characteristics as orphans do. We live our lives acting as if there is no father who loves us. That we feel that we must earn our place and therefore we have to perform. We always have to be good, otherwise we might be rejected and sent packing. And so we live our lives out and live our lives before God trying to make ourselves worthy because we can only trust ourselves, not letting people get too close because the closer people get, the more they see the things that we try hard to not let people see. You recognize that there was a characteristic of people that is very common among Christians that we live as if we are orphans. And so this word that Jesus is speaking here really pricked me because he's speaking not just to the disciples at the time but to many of us who live this life with these questions about what is expected of me? What does God want from me? What do I need to do? How do I measure up? What do I need to do to earn my keep? We have orphan-like qualities and if you find that that's true of you at all, then you need to hear Jesus' words very clearly here. I'm going away, but I will not leave you as orphans. I'm going away, but I'm going away so that another can be with you 24-7. In fact, he talks about here that other who is going to come isn't just going to be with you. He is going to dwell within you. The other is the spirit of Christ, at least is the way that Paul speaks of the spirit. But every characteristic of Christ is in the spirit, but he is not limited by body. Jesus is going away so that he can be present with all of his people. And first and foremost, we need to recognize that while God does commission everyone who belongs to him to be engaged in mission, to continue the work that he has done, to advance the kingdom of God in this world, and even though it's a daunting thought that we will do, we're expected to do more than what Jesus has done, greater things than what Jesus has done, Jesus says, you're not doing it alone. I am with you always. I will always be with you. I'm going away, but I am with you. And because of that, we always have a dynamic connection to Christ. He's not sending us out. He is going with us in whatever it is that we're doing. And it's vitally important that we understand that. Because if we miss that, we actually miss everything else. Because if we are not connected to Christ, none of the promises that go along with this actually belong to us. We must remind ourselves we are not alone, that Jesus is with us in the person of his Holy Spirit. Always. And that is true because we receive the Spirit by faith. But the second thing that he tells us that we need to understand here is that 
not only do we have a, con a, a constant connection with Christ, but we are empowered and gifted by his Holy Spirit. As the conversation went on, Jesus had, had mentioned the, the helper a couple of times, and, and I think that you know, later on, having heard that, uh, we see in verse 22, we're told Judas, not Iscariot, he had left, wasn't there, but Judas was a pretty common name at the time. Until Judas Iscariot kind of ruined it for everybody else, because you know, who wants to name their kid Judas uh, anymore? Um, probably asking for problems if you do, but it was a really good name up until that time. And he asks, okay, Lord, how, how is this going to work? I mean, how are you going to show yourself to us, but not to the world? Because, I mean, it just wasn't registering with him. And Jesus then appeals back, and, and he, he speaks a little bit in terms of what we're supposed to do. But in verse 25, in verses 26, he says, These things I've spoken to you while I'm still with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring, uh, bring to re your remembrance all that I have said to you. And, and the word there that is translated helper in the ESV is parakletos, or paraclete is the common word that people use for that. Uh, and the word paraclete has, is translated in, in, in the scriptures in four different ways. Uh, sometimes it's helper as it's in the ESV, sometimes it's comforter, sometimes it's advocate, and sometimes it is counselor. Any of those are appropriate because uh, the word encompasses that meaning. And the ESV writers translated helper, I suspect, because it touches on all the others, because you can be helped by somebody being their advocate. You can be a helper by comforting or counseling them. All those things are a helper. But any of those words are appropriate. But every one of them speaks to the person of the Holy Spirit. He, Jesus says so. Uh, literally, the word means come alongside, one who would come alongside. Jesus says that I am going to send one. I'm going away. Here's how it's going to happen. I'm going to go away. And the Spirit will come alongside. And not just come alongside, but we read, he will dwell within you. So how is it that we will see, but the world will not see? Is that those who believe will have the Spirit dwelling within us. Those who do not believe will not have the Spirit. The Spirit is invisible. So if you don't have the Spirit, you can't see him, you can't feel him, you can't touch him. But those who have the Spirit, the Spirit is present and manifesting himself in our lives. But what does the Spirit do? Because I know the whole idea of the Holy Spirit coming and dwelling within us is kind of freaky to a lot of people, particularly to a bunch of uptight, reformed, Presbyterian kinds of people. I mean, like, not you, but... Um, and then you see the excesses in other places where they celebrate the Holy Spirit who is worthy of all glory and honor, and yet... In the way they celebrate the Holy Spirit, they're actually working contrary to the Holy Spirit's purposes because the Holy Spirit's agenda and desire is always to point everybody to Jesus. He doesn't bring attention to himself. Some people refer to him as the shy member of the Trinity because he doesn't ever draw attention to himself. It's always taking people back to the cross and reminding us that we see in Jesus the fullness of the glory of God. So the Father is glorified because Jesus is glorified. The Spirit never says, hey, watch this and, you know, and, and see what happens. Never. And so in some cases when the churches have gone and abused and they focus so much on the person of the Holy Spirit, he's worthy because he is God, a part of the Trinity and equal in his glory and worthy of that. But even if we fall within, you know, we, we recognize, okay, 
some people are a little too freaked out because we can't control the spirit and we've seen the excesses and some people, we're within those bounds. What exactly does the spirit do? We see some evidence within the text, some clearer than others. Foundationally, it is the spirit who is the one who brings that dynamic connection with Christ, who secures that. We see that in the way that the word was commonly used. Most commonly used in ancient times was as the advocate or like an attorney or as a comforter. When somebody had legal troubles, they would cry out to one who was schooled in in legal affairs and they would come and they would not only counsel them, but they would advocate before the judge. When somebody was hurting, whether it's angst or just emotional stress, they would cry out and someone who was gifted would come and bring comfort and maybe counsel to them as well. Those were the common ways in which this word was used. And both of them are very important, but there's also a difference between the two. Think of it this way. If I am charged with some kind of a crime, I have to face a judge. I don't really want to comfort her at that moment. I want a lawyer, especially if I'm guilty. And when we are coming before a holy God, at least in my life, there's a whole lot that can be pointed out, and I am guilty. I don't want a comforter to come around, pat me on the back, and say, it'll be okay. You be quiet. I want my lawyer. I want a lawyer who knows the law. I want a lawyer who knows how these things work. I want a lawyer who's going to be my advocate. And here's what the Holy Spirit does for all who belong to him. And it's important that we understand this because sometimes we have this idea. We, we know the idea that the Holy Spirit works as an advocate, as our attorney on our behalf as we stand before the judge. It's easy for us to imagine that as we come back again, maybe for the same offense that we've been there before, the lawyer saying, at least this would be true of me, you know, your honor, here we are again. And then his defense would be something like this on my behalf. Your honor, I, I know my client's an idiot. Please have mercy. But see, that's not the defense the Holy Spirit makes on my behalf or on your behalf. Though, in one sense, he could. But the Holy Spirit, as our advocate, stands before the Father on our behalf, and he says, your honor, whether my client is guilty or not is not in question. But here's what needs to be remembered. Jesus Christ, your own son, has paid the penalty for his guilt. It's been paid in full. And therefore, to place any punishment upon him, regardless of his guilt, would be unjust. You cannot pay the penalty twice. Case is dismissed. It's after that that I want the comforter to come and remind me that I am in the hands of a capable attorney, not who knows loopholes, but understands both holiness and justice. Understands that I am guilty, but set free by what Christ has done. And, and so we see that work, and it's by doing that that we are not only secured eternally in Christ. The Spirit is at work doing that as if there was any way for us to be separated. This is God the Father's initiative. But then as the comforter, he comes and reminds us that that is our status. And so whether we measure up or not, 
we are children of God because of the work the Spirit has given us, enabling us to believe and therefore receiving all those benefits. And the comforter comes and reminds us of all that. Now, we also see that he's the counselor here in some ways, and Jesus refers to that because he's not only the counselor legally, he's not only the counselor for us emotionally, but we see Jesus saying one of the functions of the Spirit is that he will lead you into all truth. He will bring to remembrance everything that I have said and done. Now, speaking to the apostles particularly, and some of the guys that were sitting in that room, in specific, it answers this question that some of us have. How did these guys remember everything that Jesus said so that he wrote it down, so that we would know? I mean, how do we know we, we know? How, how, I mean, I don't even remember what I did yesterday. Jesus says here, it's because it's the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was at work within these guys, bringing to remembrance everything they needed to know so they could write down in the scripture so that we would know everything that we need to know known as the doctrine of inspiration. But along with that, it's not only a promise to these guys of how they're going to be used, it's a promise to all of us. And along with the doctrine of inspiration, it's known as the doctrine of illumination, where that which has been written down, we are able to read and understand, grow in our knowledge of God, and be directed for our lives. I love the imagery that Eugene Peterson uses when he says in relation to this, that he turns our eyes into ears. Now, if I don't explain that for some of you, that's not going to be a beautiful picture because it's kind of, you just see this like big ear on somebody's face and that's kind of gross, I would think. But what he means by that is that those who have the spirit within him who are bringing to remembrance everything that, has God, that God has taught and enabling us to understand what God has taught, he gives us the ability to look at these words on a page and they are words on a page. But as we are reading them, to also recognize that more than words on a page to those who belong to God, we somehow are hearing God speak to us. And so the eyes that we use to see this page become ears, and we can hear the voice of God, who counsels us and directs us and guides us, corrects, instructs, strengthens us, for every aspect of our lives. The Spirit also gifts us. There's not really a whole lot in this passage particularly, and I don't want to go beyond that, but we need to understand that because understanding that concept is necessary for us to understand what goes on immediately after here, at least as I summarize this. But each person who belongs to the Spirit is given gifts to be used for the purpose of building up others in the body, and the advancement of the kingdom. And so we go as those who are gifted in obedience with the power of Christ who's dwelling within us, with his counsel, his correction, with his wisdom. And rather than pointing to ourselves as Jesus did in his mission, we point to Jesus. And the power of Christ and what he has accomplished is it's the power of the gospel. It's the power of life. And we possess that because we possess this word and we are able to tell people about this. And it's the Spirit who both prepares the hearts of those who hear, who brings comfort, who brings conviction, who brings salvation, who brings life, and it brings them into that dynamic. Now, those are the two overarching principles, and, and we still need to deal with one other thing, and we'll do it relatively simply, but it is vital to this. Because throughout this passage, we see Jesus making this statement, if you love me, you'll keep my commands. In the middle of this passage, we see not only does he repeat that, if you love me, you'll keep my commands, but he gives the alternative to it. He says, 
And those who don't love me won't keep my commands. And that makes sense. I mean, if you don't love Jesus, you don't care about Jesus, you don't care what he wants, why would you do what he wants to do? But this statement that Jesus says that if you love me, you'll keep my commands, we need to hear what Jesus is saying because it's not a matter of simply having two categories, but there's, there's, I would say that they are poles and we live between them. We need to hear that he is not in any way saying, if you want me to love you, you'll keep my commands. That's not it. He has already brought grace. He has already shown his love. And whether we recognize that and therefore love him, and we wonder, how is it that I can say that I show my love for Jesus? He says it's very simple. Do what I've instructed you. Keep my commands. If you've ever wondered why should I go and do these things that Jesus commands, why should I stick my neck out for people who don't like me or you know, can do no good for me, the answer is, is because you're doing it to demonstrate to Jesus that you love him because he first loved you. Now there is another category that we can see somewhat in between here, between the lines, and it's where most of us live which is that we do want to love Jesus, but we don't do what he commands, at least not consistently. We, therefore, are acting like those who don't love Jesus. And the correction for that is to recognize you are loved and obey Jesus in repenting and believing his grace is greater than we can imagine. Repentance and believing are commands. And when we do that, we are honoring Christ. And the way that we, what we believe is how much we have been loved by God in the person of Jesus, which stokes the love within our hearts, which we then say, how can I show that? Well, I'll do what you command. What does he command? Love your neighbor. How should we love our neighbors? Well, in practical ways, in significant ways, in simple ways. Making sure that we are encouragers to our neighbors, that they... Uh, if they have needs, that we can meet the needs of our neighbors, if, if it's all possible, or helping them to do that. Whether that deals with their health issues, or their food feeding issues, or, and ultimately their spiritual issues. We are called to meet our neighbors. That's the command. And that's doing what Jesus did, that he commissioned his disciples to do. And so it's faithfulness and love for Jesus that compels us to go out and do things for our neighbors, and Jesus says, and the harvest will be greater than anything that I did while I was with you, in part because I've gone to the Father and I am with you, and I am at work by my Spirit in you and through you, and I have gifted you and empowered you, and you will see fruit, because that's the way that God has designed it. Now, the disciples may have been skeptical, even as I, I would be, but I wonder what they were thinking a few weeks later that after Peter spoke at Pentecost and thousands of people repented and believed. Do you know that one day, through Peter's message of saying, you killed Jesus, but it was the Father's will to crush him so that through his death, you might have life. Do you know more people became followers and believers of Jesus that day through Peter's message? than all of the ministry that Jesus had done in three years through his proclamation. In other words, at Pentecost alone, Peter had done greater numerically than what Jesus had done in three years of ministry. 
And then as the people were scattered and went elsewhere, not just the apostles, but all the believers that went and were prepared to give reason for the hope that they had and loved their neighbors in practical ways, God bore fruit and brought people to life in tremendous numbers. What is greater about what is being done through his disciples and what Jesus did? Not anything of our own strength or our doing, but it is the numbers of people and the geography in which that has gone, even to the ends of the earth, which at that time was us, where we live. And yet, there's still places where the gospel is rejected, ironically, most intensely right where Jesus was ministering. And they still need to hear. And he's bearing fruit even today. I can't remember if it's next week or the week after. Uh, we're going to have a church planter coming in, and he'll just so we can get to know him. He's in Virginia Beach, and in our tradition, we give church planters about three years to plant a church if they're starting with nothing. That seems to be a reasonable time uh, to meet people, gather people, and be self-sufficient. After three years, if you're not if you're not self-sufficient, well, we take all your money away and encourage you to go wash cars or something. No, uh, that part isn't, but, um, and there's all sorts of various reasons, but I mean, it's a, we found that to be a reasonable thing. I have friends who've been to Africa and serve in Sub-Saharan Africa, and um, you know how long they tell me that it's often, not always, not a principle, but often, how long it takes to plant a church? Three days. They come, they proclaim the gospel, people repent and are believing in such incredible numbers in sub-Saharan Africa that you know, thousands of people, more than at Pentecost, are believing and that whoever the evangelist is, say, all right, well, it's a whole bunch of you, go make a church and he goes someplace else and then they begin to pastor each other and raise up leadership. And all throughout Africa, the gospel is flourishing in a way that we just don't even hear about. I, I don't know about the numbers in China, but the gospel is flourishing there in ways that we don't even know. Ordinary people that we will never hear about are bearing fruit in tremendous number in places where Jesus never physically set foot. And we are called to do that same thing in our community. And some of us are called to leave this community and go to the ends of the earth and to share that gospel. But in our community, in the different pockets, wherever we belong, with that same promise that we will bear greater fruit, we will do greater things than Jesus, because Jesus is the one doing it in us by his spirit. If we love him and are faithful to do what he commands us to do, which is to love other people and to share the reason for our hope. Prayer is that that will be something that we embrace and learn to trust the Holy Spirit in this church and that he will bear fruit through our labors, whether that leads to us being packed out or simply people getting saved. I'll leave that to God. May he see us faithful, that we might demonstrate we love him. Father, we pray that you would work in us now. Grant us the joy of seeing you at work within us and the fruit through our labors. Bless us, we pray, for the benefit of these people around us, our joy, but even more, the delight that you have. May you receive all power and glory through your church.